0: For more than 200 years, Birmingham has been the platform chosen by some of the greatest political orators in Britain. Their speeches changed the course of British history, shaped the contemporary political mood and often confronted the great controversies of their time. Frequently heard by thousands of men and women and reported verbatim in the press, this was politics in the raw, a totally different world from today's political discourse of soundbites and tweets. Major political figures chose Birmingham as their platform because then, as now, this was the provincial counterweight to establishment London. Here was the real world of industry, of modernity, of a Britain that was changing and into which this change brought tough social challenges which often spawned radical and non-conformist responses. Whether you agreed or violently disagreed with what was being said you simply could not ignore it. Now, in a fascinating new book, Speeches That Changed Britain, Oratory in Birmingham, historian Andrew Reeks explores these great events, looks at the charismatic speakers themselves and analyses the mesmeric hold they had on their audiences. To set the scene, Jenny Butterworth of History West Midlands talks with the author Andrew Reeks and Professor Peter Marsh.
1: Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, Some of the most significant speeches in our nation's history were delivered here in Birmingham, a town with a reputation for espousing radical politics and causes. In this History West Midlands programme, we set out to explore the evidence for how Birmingham acquired this reputation and why the speeches delivered here were so important. I'm Jenny Butterworth and joining me today are Andrew Reeks, author of Speeches that Changed Britain, Oratory in Birmingham, which is published by History West Midlands, and Professor Peter Marsh, author of Joseph Chamberlain, Entrepreneur in Politics and an expert on the Chamberlain family. Welcome. So just to introduce the subject, if you were a layperson and you were thinking where were some of the most important political speeches of the 19th and 20th century? century made. Perhaps your first thought would be that it would be London, Westminster, the sort of heart of politics in Britain, but actually it's Birmingham. So I just wondered, Andrew, could you just give us a sense of sort of what was 19th century Birmingham like and why did it attract political speakers?
2: Well, the first point to make is that Birmingham was a rapidly expanded town, a town of small metal workshops. It was known as a town of a thousand trades and it was radically different from London, for the establishment was based in London. But Birmingham was, in a sense, unrepresented entirely and felt excluded. Its 300,000 people by 1830 with no MP at Westminster. That sense of exclusion was heightened by its nonconformity. It had a strong nonconformist character, nonconformists in the the united kingdom were excluded from public office and from education until the 1830s and many of the leaders of birmingham in the 19th century came from nonconformist background i think another point to make is that birmingham rapidly established itself around 1800 as having very evidently active and radical population with a reputation for engagement in political matters and reformative matters So it's not entirely surprising that across the century it should take over from Manchester as the provincial voice in Britain rather than, of course, London, which was the establishment centre of Britain.
3: As Andrew says, Birmingham was characterised until the 1850s by small workshops where master and men worked side by side and the class distinction, the economic division... Was not glaring, whereas in Manchester were great textile factories and great distinction socially and even more economically between the masters and men, what we would now say is between capitalists and labor. So that made Birmingham a fertile ground for dialogue between the classes that were excluded by the establishment. So many of the speeches we're going to talk about and feature in this book are speeches with the speaker from the upper middle classes and the audience from the middle or working classes. That's a popular dialogue that these big rallies give rise to.
1: So that's probably a good moment to introduce our first character, Thomas Atwood. Andrew, do you want to just tell us a little bit about him? He is a Birmingham born and bred.
2: He's from a local metal manufacturing family, but also a banking family. And he was, in a sense, driven into politics by his sense of frustration that the government would not heed his advice on currency reform, The government was wedded to the gold standard and that was deflationary and he believed in paper money and cheques and bills of exchange and so on. And therefore he was profoundly frustrated by the mid to late 1820s that Parliament wasn't listening. The only way to make them listen was to, in a sense, reform Parliament and have people like him in there.
1: So let's hear some of Thomas Atwood's words. This is from a speech he made about parliamentary reform in 1832. It took place on Newhall Hill, which is now sort of within built-up Birmingham, but was then a sort of large open space. It was a rally attended by hundreds of thousands of people, and this is what he said.
4: My dear friends and fellow countrymen, I thank you most sincerely for the immense, glorious and magnificent assemblage which you now present in the hour of your country's need. The enemies of the liberties of our country have spoken of reaction and indifference in the public mind towards the great cause of reform. How are they answered by the people of the Midland counties? We have had but to stamp on the earth, as it were, and from beneath the ground, 100,000 brave men, besides the thousands of beautiful women I see before me, determined to see their country righted, present themselves at our call.
1: Now, that was followed, we are told, by great cheering. You know, it is said that up to 200,000 people attended that speech. So Atwood is an upper-middle-class speaker, but the majority of his audience are not. They're working class. How would they have received that speech?
2: I think the point to make, first of all, is that the speech was part of a larger entertainment. It was a highly choreographed occasion... The speech would be part of an organised march, bands, songs, banners, favours, singing songs. The crowd was there to be entertained as well as to be informed, and of course it believed strongly in the notion of reform. And so Atwood was, in a sense, an entertainer, but he was also an informer, and he, in a sense, articulated the feelings that they had about their exclusion from power.
1: Do we know much about his speaking style in terms of taking the crowd with him and enthusing them? As you say, he's got the backup of a sort of entertaining occasion.
2: His speaking style, firstly, he was renowned for modulating his voice to draw them in as he softened his voice, and those who could hear, and of course 200,000 is an awful lot to hear, though it is in a natural amphitheatre, those who were craning to hear would be encouraged by standard signal words which he used throughout his speech, which were reform, peace, unity, liberty, freedom. And in a sense, those were triggers for them, things they related to their understanding of what the reform movement was about, which was essentially to get them included in the parliamentary process.
1: And obviously, I guess his speech will also be having an impact on the rest of the country as well.
2: I think that's a really important point. He ensured that his speeches were printed instantly and were available and sent down to London the next day. And for all our speakers, right the way up to the present day, a consciousness of the world beyond Birmingham is there. Yes,
3: it's also true from the 1830s on for the rest of the 19th century and even into the 20th that there's a very important provincial press. It's not all the metropolitan press. This is the great day, particularly, of the Birmingham Daily Post, um, which was certainly for outside London, it rivaled the times. I think this is probably the most important oratorical occasion in the 19th century, not so much because of the speech as because of those spoken to. I don't think there was another occasion in the 19th century when 200,000 people would be gathered to an event. Even a sporting event wouldn't get that many. It's a huge demonstration of what we now call public opinion It was something that frightened the establishment in London and frightened them all the more because this wasn't a mob. These people behaved themselves. The men also came, men and women, in their Sunday best, many of them top-hatted. They're working class, but they dress middle class. They want to be taken Seriously. And it's that discipline that is really intimidating. Uh, the Duke of Wellington, who was leading the resistance to the passage of what becomes the First Reform Act, the Duke of Wellington was intimidated. He knew something about disciplining large numbers of men, but he knew that large numbers of men could accomplish enormous things if and only if they were disciplined, and these people were really disciplined.
2: Many people did talk of revolution during those 18 months of the reform crisis. And indeed, Bronte O'Brien said this, that to the Birmingham political union is due the triumph of the reform bill. Its immense assemblages rendered the measure irresistible. And I think that's a very important point. There was a leading radical who recognised the power of these huge meetings that Peter's just talked about. The point was not only that Atwood had founded the Birmingham Political Union, which was a template for 130 other political unions all around England. What he had done was create a way of putting pressure on government. And at key moments in the Reform Saga what it was that put the Tory opposition and the Lords off from ultimately resisting the reform bill to the end was the consciousness that there were all these people, if you like, in the traps waiting to be released. Were they to be pushed too hard, reform would turn to revolution. And Atwood controlled this. His genius was to be able to instill the discipline on Birmingham and that was a very threatening thing for government to know what might happen.
1: Well, let's move forward sort of 20 or so years to the great reformer John Bright. Again, Andrew, give us just a brief introduction to John Bright and why he is still pushing for electoral reform.
2: Well, first of all, he was a Rochdale Quaker politician. He's a northerner. He established his reputation with the success of the Anti-Corn Law League, which won the repealing of the Corn Laws and established his reputation as a leading radical. His opposition to Britain's role in the Crimean War was thought to be unpatriotic by many of his Manchester constituents, and he was expelled from Manchester at the election, 1857. And Birmingham, now that the war was over, with a long radical history, decided that it wanted this great radical to be its representative, one of its two MPs. And so John Bright... He has a new mission and his mission is to ensure household suffrage for all working men. Many working men who are highly respectable don't have the vote and Bright can articulate this and will use Birmingham as his base for that.
1: Okay, so let's hear a little of John Bright's speech on arrival in Birmingham, 1857. This speech was made at the town hall.
2: I say that we are great in numbers that united we are great in strength, that we are invincible in the solidity of our arguments, that we are altogether unassailable in the justice of our cause.
4: Am I not in the town of Birmingham, England's central capital? And do not these eyes look upon the sons of those who not 30 years ago shook the fabric of privilege to its base?
1: They're very rousing words there. Um, He was a famous orator, Peter, wasn't he? Yes,
3: he was. It's interesting that he's referring back to the 1832 speech. That's exactly what he wants to rekindle. The 1832 Reform Act had enfranchised a good deal of the middle class, but no working class. And there was some intense resentment among the working class at having helped to bring about the passage of the Great Reform Act, and then, in a sense, being deprived of what they had fought for. So the Second Reform Act, which is going to come 10 years after this speech, is for the first time to enfranchise a big chunk of the working class, not all, but a big
2: chunk
1: We can tell from the words he's using, and he is using very rousing language, that he was an accomplished speaker. Yes,
2: he was one of the great orators of his age. And I think it didn't just happen. He worked at it just as Joseph Chamberlain worked at speaking. He was trained in Ackworth School in rhetoric and in the Rochdale Literary and Philosophical Society. So, in a sense, he's worked at this oratory from a young age. And his Quaker background very strong Quaker, gave him a wealth of biblical allusion, I think. He also had a natural facility for colourful language, colourful images. And some of the memorable phrases of 19th century speeches come from him. He talked about England being the mother of parliaments. And when he spoke against the war in Crimea, he said this, that the angel of death has been abroad the land. You may almost hear the beating of his wings... It was incredibly powerful stuff, and it really did wow his audiences. It moved them very profoundly.
1: Yeah, and he was much loved as a result. I mean, not just for his ideas, but as a character and a personality.
2: Yeah, he was much loved, and funnily enough, if you look at the whole career, he was actually quite unreliable. Um, He (laughs) broke down physically frequently, but not only that. He didn't seem to have stamina. He certainly couldn't hold office down for very long. So his greatness was, in a sense, as a campaigner rather than as an administrator. But he looked the part. He He had a mane of white
3: hair. He looked (laughs) like uh, an Old Testament prophet, um, in a way. It's interesting that he was a Quaker that's a, a... denomination known for the silence that it can keep. But uh, when John Bright the Quaker roared, people listened.
1: Bright made that great speech when he came to Birmingham in 1857. Joseph Chamberlain... He had already arrived in Birmingham a little before this to work in his uncle's firm. He's a young man, I guess he's in his late teens. Would he have been interested in John Bright and his politics as a young man?
3: Very interested in his radical politics. He is a young man, he's just 20 in 1857, and it wasn't just his uncle's firm, it was his uncle's and his father's firm, So he's the son of businessmen who are building a big business together. He's intensely supportive of Bright, and though I don't know for a fact, I'm quite confident that he would have heard this speech. He, like Bright, trained himself to become a speaker. In 1857, he will have been in the Birmingham and Edgbaston debating society, but he didn't do very well to begin with as a speaker. He had to learn the craft. His first noted intervention in the debates of that society was in criticism of Bright, not of his radicalism, but of his pacifism, of his opposition to the Boer War. Joseph Chamberlain's father and his ancestors had made their money as cordwainers or shoemakers. Armies are great consumers of <laughs> shoes. So the Chamberlains were not militaristic, but very assertively patriotic. And Joe Chamberlain disagreed with Bright over the uh, Crimean War, but on the what both men regarded it as the central issue of the age, what we would call popular democratising reform, they were of one mind.
1: We'll hear a bit of a Joseph Chamberlain speech in a moment, but first, you know, we... Think of him as a national politician, obviously, but he started out in Birmingham politics and he was directly engaged with what we think of as the civic gospel. So I wondered, Andrew, could you just give us a little sense of what it means, the civic gospel, when we use that phrase? What are we talking about?
2: Civic gospel is the belief that the town councils, municipal boroughs had the responsibility to improve its peoples both in the way that they lived their sanitation their water and so on but also in higher things things of the mind too libraries and art galleries it was the notion that at the local level you really could make a profound difference to your peoples by collective action To improve their lot.
1: So, Birmingham really was leading the way in terms of the civic gospel as a place. And again, is there a reason why that is?
2: I think the work of George Dawson and Robert Dale was to articulate ideas which were, if you like, in the air. There had been work done in Manchester, for example, in these areas of sanitation and uh, civic responsibility already. But what it was here was that Dawson, particularly, firstly anyway, gave a voice to that, expressed it. And this speech is part of that call to arms of local businessmen to join the crusade to improve the lot of its people
1: So let's have a listen to some of George Dawson's words. These are taken from a speech he made in 1866 at the opening of the Library of Birmingham.
0: A great town is a solemn organism through which should flow and in which should be shaped all the highest, loftiest and truest ends of a man's intellectual and moral nature. We are a corporation who have undertaken the highest duty that is possible for us. We have made provision for our people, for all our people. And we have made a provision of God's greatest and best gifts unto man.
1: That really does sum up the idea of the civic gospel. So just tell us a little bit more about George Dawson. Who was he, Andrew, that he was able to articulate these ideas so powerfully?
2: Well, he was a founder of his own church, the Church of the Saviour, a radical minister with ideas about politics and social responsibility far beyond the merely theological. He was a great speaker. He had a national reputation. Charles Kingsley, the novelist, dubbed him the greatest talker in England, and people came to hear him. The radical message he had was one which chimed with many of the contemporaries in Birmingham, one of whom was Joseph Chamberlain, as we were here. And this particular speech is one which expresses, I think, his strong belief in the redemptive possibilities of education, of raising the intellectual aspirations of the working classes. He thought this could be achieved by reading, by an exposure to culture, and he thought was the duty of municipal councillors to provide this education through libraries and museums and art galleries, they could achieve a transformation in the lot of the working man. And he wanted, and this was really important, he wanted successful businessmen who hitherto had been disengaged to, if you like, come on board and lead the crusade for the civic gospel.
3: This is a remarkable speech. The corporation, the town, is being given the role usually associated with the church. This is a civic gospel with as much emphasis on gospel as it is on civic, and that makes it truly radical. All the leading nonconformist ministers in Birmingham were right behind this, and Joseph Chamberlain was... Imbued with this. And what he did was to put that gospel into practice, into civic practice. He turns this message into a civic policy. And the thrust of it remains radical. When he's introducing the Birmingham Improvement Plan in the late 1870s, he talks about we can, as a city, by educating and by creating clean water and decent housing, we can get rid of crime. The city becomes an instrument of redemption. And uh, Joe Chamberlain is quite aware. He's a Unitarian, but uh, a Unitarian who, in a sense, is transferring the Christian gospel into civic terms.
1: So we have a great combination here in Birmingham of speakers and sort of charismatic religious leaders and effective politicians, and... Their joint legacy in terms of the civic gospel and our notion of what a town or a city should be is pretty powerful, Andrew, is it?
2: Well, it is. And in a sense, by the time he moves from being mayor of Birmingham to being its MP, Chamberlain has set in place a radical transformation of the city, which is still with us today. I think it's worth adding to what Peter said that the contrast of the Chamberlainite era with previous councils was very great. There had been a dominant idea of the economical party, really, which was basically keep costs down and don't do too much. And this was therefore a massive change in energy and acceleration of what a council might do. Yes, so not only is there this gospel
3: element, it's a challenge to the church in a sense, but it's a challenge also to the state. Chamberlain politically is the first person to assert the greatness of political power. He's not afraid of political power. He's not, like Gladstone, anxious to reduce the role of government. He wants to maximise the role of government. So this is a very radical message with high moral claims
2: and high political claims. Could you add to that that an equally revelatory moment for him was in 1869 when the Birmingham Education Society decides to find the facts about who is going to school and who isn't going to school. In other words, the appalling waste of primary level children in Birmingham. And it's a revelation to him, is it not, to discover that actually all the Private efforts in the world will never ensure that all these children get to school.
3: That's right. And all those private efforts had been made largely by the Church of England. So the Church of England has tried and failed.
1: And where the Church has failed, the state will succeed. Before we listen to some of his words, I wondered, Andrew, if you just wanted to give us a sense, what feel did you get for him as a speaker?
2: I think the first thing that strikes me is how well-researched, how well-organised his speeches are. They're methodical, they're remorseless in their employment of facts, highly organised. And also, I should say, he is capable of sarcasm, cutting, irony. He can be quite cruel in his speeches, when he wants to be. But the thing that strikes me above everything else is his own personality. He was charismatic, unquestionably, and I find it myself attractive, but others are repelled by it. There's an energy, a drive and a passion. Beatrice Webb describes watching him in the early 1880s and she talks about the way he wooed his audience and they hung on his every word. It was almost a lover's relationship here at times. And he could be very attractive and he could be very winning but he could also be brutal. And he was a very strong personality with very strong views on things, and that just comes through his speeches to me. Do you agree? Oh, yes, and uh, those words of Beatrice
3: Potter, she becomes Beatrice Webb, but she knew what she was speaking about because he could woo an audience as he was wooing her. (laughs) Um, And she was... (laughs) Utterly captivated by it. The analogy, she was heartfelt. It was ultimately not a successful courtship because he was very assertive and dominating and Beatrice Potter, later Webb, was not to be dominated.
2: And (laughs) I think he had very strong views on the roles of a woman.
1: Okay, so we will listen to some of his words. This is from an 1885 speech to the Birmingham Artisans Association.
4: We have at home men who, having already annexed everything that is worth having, expect everybody else to be content with the crumbs that fall from the table. Natural rights have passed away. The common rights of ownership have disappeared. Some have been sold. Some have been stolen by fraud. Private ownership has taken the place of communal rights, and this has been sanctioned by law. But then I ask, what ransom will property pay for the security which it enjoys? Property has obligations as well as rights. But what are the rights of property? Are the game laws a right of property? Is it just and expedient that the armaments of the rich carried even to barbarous excess should be protected by a draconian code of law? You must look for the cure in legislation which lays the heaviest burden on the shoulders best able to bear them. Legislation which will give a free education to every child in the land...
3: And I would say immediately that that's the most radical speech given by a major politician in Britain in the 19th century. And in fact, it proved too radical. And he had to back away almost immediately because he used one word, ill-chosen. But then I ask, what ransom will property pay for the security which it enjoys? That produced a great reaction, and he had to backpedal immediately.
1: What has led him to make such a radical speech at this moment? I think
2: he's deeply frustrated at the fact that the Gladstone government, of which he's a member, has done very, very little in terms of social reform and changing the prospects for ordinary working men. Secondly, he's conscious that... They've just been enfranchised, these people, by the Third Reform Act, and he's clear that these are people who might vote his way if he's got a a really radical prospectus. I would absolutely agree with Peter. The word ransom is terrifying, and it showed to me the real radical Joe Chamberlain. He really was ahead of his time, ahead of any other politician. He sets, if you like, the prospectus for the 20th century for redistribution politics, And he steps away from it, partly because he is forced through all sorts of other political changes, like the Liberal Party split and the fact that he has to come and ally with the people that he's hurling rocks at here, that I think he sort of steps back from it because it's pragmatic to do so, as well as because he realizes he's gone too far.
3: Yes, there's something else, by the way, about the rhetoric here, and that is that although there are some religious overtones here, this is a lean style of speaking, and it's easy in the 20th and even in the 21st century to go back to Joe Chamberlain's speeches and read them with complete understanding. This is lean, modern, unadorned prose, and that was quite new and sets the style for what's going to come after that. It's also, right at the end, uh, legislation which will give a free education to every child in the land. And he found, within months of saying that, that this also was another potential can of worms. How were you going to pay for free education? How you approach, how you move toward these principles, that's a political challenge and sometimes direct frontal assault is not the best way to achieve your end. Though
2: so it's interesting that within six years, that has been conceded... That's right. ..by the very people he's assaulting here right. in 1891.
1: <laughs> Obviously, the history of great speech-making in Birmingham doesn't end with Joseph Chamberlain, but I think those sort of thoughts about Chamberlain setting the agenda, perhaps, for the 20th century, where does it leave Birmingham today? Are political speeches still important?
2: Well, I think it's worth saying that... In the 20th century, the fact is that Birmingham continues to host important speeches. For example, the fact that the Chamberlainite unionists continue to control Birmingham effectively up to 1945 with one aberration in 1929 is in fact a provocation to people that they will come to Birmingham to challenge that, and Oswald Mosley is the best example of that, coming here in 1925 right to the heart of uh, Chamberlainite stronghold and essentially challenges Neville Chamberlain in Ladywood with a great speech. And I think Birmingham is also important because it remains, in a sense, provincial and not establishment. And I think that's the reason why Enoch Powell comes here in 1968, because, in a sense, he thinks that Westminster does not understand the things that his constituents are feeling about the immigration issue. So he comes here to express that on their behalf to challenge Westminster. By the beginning of the
3: 20th century, radio is on the horizon. Television is coming, other forms of entertainment. The press is also changing, no longer word-for-word reporting of major speeches, but is addressing an entertainment function. So there are competitive forms of entertainment. You described the entertainment function of Atwood's speech with bands and banners in 1832. There are other shows in town in the 20th century and the greatest age of political oratory has passed with, of course, one very remarkable exception and that's Churchill's wartime speeches. Although they were heard mainly on radio, they were not delivered to mass audiences, and it's the recordings that we hear.
1: Well, that does feel like a very good point, as we are here in a recorded (laughs) environment, discussing these speeches, to draw ourselves to a close. So thank you very much both. It's been a fascinating discussion and definitely enough to convince us of Birmingham's important role in our nation's history as a magnet for political speakers.
0: The important story of political oratory in Birmingham doesn't end with the death of Joseph Chamberlain. In the following decades, many famous and sometimes infamous speeches have been made here. In the 1920s, the city became the platform for Oswald Mosley to argue fiercely for his radical brand of socialism which, when rejected by the Labour Party, set him on the road to fascism. And it was to Birmingham that Joseph Chamberlain's second son, Neville, returned after his meeting with Adolf Hitler in Munich to justify his policy of appeasement in a vain attempt to save his premiership. The respite he gained was short-lived when, a year later, the Nazis invaded Poland. After the Second World War, Birmingham continued to be a focus for radical political argument. Famously, Enoch Powell chose a nondescript ballroom in the Midland Hotel to ignite a fierce debate with his apocalyptic vision of Britain's future. And, fittingly, two recent speeches delivered in the city, one by Nobel laureate Malala Yousafzai and the other by Prime Minister David Cameron, offered a 21st century vision of a Britain where ethnic diversity is an asset and not a cause for fear. You can read more about 200 years of the speeches that changed Britain and take the opportunity to explore the motives of the great political orators who delivered them in historian Andrew Reek's important book Speeches That Changed Britain Oratory in Birmingham published by History West Midlands. It is now available from the publishers at www.historywm.com and from Amazon.com priced £14.99.